There's an important book that's called The Return of the Prodigal that was written about that very scripture story by a theologian priest named Henry Nowen. And the book is a reflection on a painting by Rembrandt that was painted in the 1600s, the 1660s. And there are a lot of different things, different people to see in this image, in this painting. Now you can see the three main characters in the foreground, and there are at least two in the background in the darker colors of the painting. But I want to ask you this morning to focus on the embrace between the father and the son. Look at the father, at um, his facial features, his posture, the color of his dress, even the gesture of his hands. Nowen wrote that all of these qualities about the Father point to the divine love for us that has existed from the beginning and will ever be. He goes on to say that what makes this image of the Son and the Father, what makes this image of the Father so irresistible to us, is that what is most divine is captured and what is most human. So something that we can't completely understand, something that we can't completely comprehend, what it is to be God, is described with some accuracy by what it is to be human, something that we totally get, what it is to be a parent. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, Dinah, I don't have kids. But my money is on the fact that you have parents. (laughs) And even if you didn't have good parents, even the experience of an absent parent or bad parents allows you to understand what a good parent is about. This father in this painting appears to be nearly blind. He's a nearly blind old man. This is one of Rembrandt's last paintings, one of the last things that he painted before his death. Some of his most stunning portraits are of the elderly and of the blind. Art historians have said that as Rembrandt himself matured, he began to paint blind people as the real seers of the world. In touch with what was beautiful, in touch with the depth of an interior life. So while the scripture story tells us that the father recognizes the son from far away, sees him at a distance, runs to him, and that would be a rather undignified move for a Jewish father, embraces the son and kisses him. That's a lot of youthful movement. The painting that Rembrandt painted depicts uh, not the father's physical body or physical eye, but the eye of the father's heart in the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son. This is a father who sees my need to be understood. This is a father who sees my need to belong, who has no desire to punish. Look at the shoes on the son. Can you see the shoes? They're worn out. I don't know if you can see the shoes. The shoes, the head, his head has been shaved. The garments of the son, he's punished himself enough. His journey has punished him. And Nowen wrote that the true center of the painting, the true center of this image is the father's hands. 
all the light is concentrated on the hands and all the bystanders and the picture are focused on the father's hands. As you look at the father's hands, you're probably going to notice that the two hands are quite different. It's almost as if they belong on two different bodies. The left hand is strong. The left hand is muscular. The left hand is touching the son's shoulder with a certain pressure. And the right hand is different. The right hand is more refined. It's soft. It's tender. It's gentle. Now, some have said that the left hand is Rembrandt's own hand. It's a self-portrait of sorts. And that the right hand in this painting is the hand that he painted on a Jewish bride about the same time period. So lest you think that the motherly quality of God's love is a new or modern phenomenon, Rembrandt was thinking about it in the 1600s. Daryl and Ryan and I didn't just dream up the tender compassion of God. And when Jesus taught that God is like a mother hen gathering her chicks under wing, he didn't make it up either. He was quoting a psalm. Jesus was restating Psalm 61. Oh God, you have been my refuge. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Now, Nowen writes in his book, The Return of the Prodigal, that there's something about the father's red cloak that looks like a shelter, that looks like a tent, that looks like wings. So this week I've been thinking about shelter. I've been thinking about the shelter and the story of the prodigal son. I've been thinking about the father's home. I imagine that the father's home in this parable is fairly big. It's a good size. There are fields. There are servants. The property is large enough for the father to divide it up, to sell off a piece of it and still live there with the older son. The home in this story is a place where the father stays, where the father lives, and it's a place that provides for the family. Most, if not the entire story, of the prodigal son takes place outdoors. The action is unsheltered. So there's a scene in a distant land on a pig farm, the path leading up to the father's house, the fields surrounding the house. But there's no description of the inside of the home. At the end of the story, even though no character sets foot across the threshold of the home, we know about the goings-on inside of the house, don't we? We know what's happening in the home. It's a party, a feast, a celebration. So what keeps us from going in? What keeps the father's children from going inside? What keeps them outside? For the younger son... For the younger son, it's a dream of independence. It's a dream of wealth and sure indulgence. If the younger son is nothing else, the younger son is one self-centered cat, isn't he? He says directly to the father, to his face, give me my inheritance. Now that's a request that you make after a parent's death, but not while the parent is still right there with you. So essentially, the son says to the father, you're dead to me. The father divides up the property, just doles it out. It's a rather foolish act. You know, the meaning of the word prodigal is recklessly extravagant. And from time to time, I'll hear wise counsel refer to this story as the parable of the prodigal father. 
And I think that's true. He's recklessly extravagant. The father is recklessly generous from the beginning with his property, and he's recklessly generous with his affection. The younger son sells his share of the property for cash. The property that the father owned is sold to someone else. I can imagine neighbors moving in much too close. (laughs) And the younger boy sets off down the road. Now, the older boy, the older son, is also distinguished by his self-centeredness. It appears to me he has no more respect for the father than his younger brother. This guy lectures the father in front of their guests, the guests that have come from the celebration for the party. And he refuses the plea of the father to come inside. Everything that the father has belongs to the older son, and maybe that's part of the problem because when his brother returns empty-handed, the guy that he refers to as that son of yours, when that son of the father's returns, who will support that son? Who will support the household? Well, it will fall upon the older brother. The older brother will support the younger son, and the older brother will support the household. So here's the problem. Here's the thing that keeps both boys away from the feast. When they look at their home, I think they don't see their home. When they look at their home, I think they see a bank. The older son sees his father as a banker. He boasts about his service to the institution And he's focused on the money that he deserves for his investment of hard work and time. He wants a fat savings account from the bank. And the younger son, the younger son also approaches the father as a banker. His first move is to request an unlimited overdraft. And his second is to ask for a loan, any loan, even one with an exorbitant interest rate. He'll take that. There are times that I pray to God as the great banker in the sky. Please pour out your favor and your blessing on me now. I'll take the goods immediately. I'll spend them well. I will enjoy them. Or a prayer that sounds more like, I know I don't deserve it, but God, if you'll just, if you'll just do this, then I will fill in the blank. Both of those prayers are transactional. Both of those prayers are requesting a transaction from a banker. You do this and I'll do that. Or I've done all this, so you do this for me. If nothing else, this story of the prodigal father is an invitation to lose lose a grasp on control. And fall into the Father's grip of grace. Jesus tells this parable to a diverse crowd. Luke tells us, Luke has us imagine that there are tax collectors hearing this story. Disciples, sinners, Pharisees, teachers. And I think they all would hear this. Regardless of how you approach God. Regardless of how your vision is distorted. God is a loving parent. God is not doling out good things to those who earn them or pay enough for them. But God is a loving parent who wants 
nothing more than to be in close relationship with their children. Now, Jesus didn't make this metaphor up. The prophet Jeremiah called to Israel, the Holy One says, my children return. Israel asked the prophet, but how? Israel said, just let us lie in our shame. Let our confusion cover us. But God sent word, my children, my children, if you will return, you will be returning to your father. There are two important rabbinical teachings that I want you to hear to describe the ease of the return for the child who returns to the parent. First, the rabbis taught that if a person will do what he or she can do to start the journey home, God will provide all the help that is needed. So like the daughter of a king, like the daughter of a king who was far away from the father a hundred days journey, return to your father, her friend said, I am not able, the daughter replied. So the king sent a message, come as far as you're able. Come as far as you can with your own strength, and I will come and bring you the rest of the way. God will see to it. God will see to it that we make it home. We simply point our faces in the right direction. And the second rabbinical teaching I want you to hear is another conversation between a parent and a child. A son says to his father, I'm leaving. I'm leaving for a far country by sea, but the father warns, The time for sailors to ship out is past. If you go now, you will face certain destruction. Your ship will be wrecked and all that you have will be lost. However, son, hear this. Hear this. If you lose everything, if all your belongings are swept away at sea and only you are delivered, remember, don't be ashamed to return to me. Don't ever be ashamed to come home. I will always, always welcome you. William Paul Young is the author of uh, the little novel, the book called The Shack that was turned into a movie. And he's done some, some reflecting publicly on what it was like for the book that he wrote as a Christmas present to his children to be widely published, received with some hostility in his own church circles, and then made into a movie. He said, there's a line that he wrote in this book as just a throwaway line. He didn't think much of it. He has this line coming out of the mouth of the character Papa, Papa who's played by Octavia Spencer. This line is directed to the main character, and the line is this, I'm especially fond of you. A throwaway line. And yet he said this is the line that's most often quoted back to him. Probably, he says, because the line is other-directed. If I say to you, I love you, that statement is more about me or more about the person who's saying I love you. But if I say to you, I'm especially fond of you, the weight of that sentence is at the end of the sentence. It's other-directed. It's more about you. So Young thinks that people have gravitated to that simple throwaway line because they get that God's compassion is directed to them. Young says that he was in a a women's prison in Alberta, 
And after his talk, an inmate came up to him. She was crying. She was sobbing. She couldn't even talk. And when she caught her breath, she simply whispered to him, Do you really think that Papa's fond of me? And he said back to her, Oh, I know he's especially fond of you. And she said, That's all I need to know. You and me both. You and me both. Will you pray with me? Loving God, we long both to understand and to feel your embrace. Lord, we invite you to make your home in us, that our actions in the world will be fueled by your great acceptance and affection. Allow us to stop striving for approval. Allow us to stop striving for attention and enable us to experience the cancellation of spiritual debts. Could we rest and enjoy your love and your creation, some this very day and more every day that follows? We ask these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.